Welcome to the Men on Purpose podcast, featuring dynamic conversations with emerging and established visionary men on purpose. Thanks for joining us today as we celebrate the men on purpose who are committed, creative, courageous change makers, living their best, most fulfilling life possible. Now, here's the host of Men on Purpose, Ian Lobos. Welcome to another episode of the Men on Purpose podcast, where we celebrate men on purpose and provide our listeners with wisdom and immediately actionable steps to be more purposeful, powerful, and positive in their impact and their leadership. This is your host, Ian Lobos, and today we're welcoming a very special guest all the way from Hollywood, California, Roger Nygaard. Roger has directed TV series such as The Office and The Bernie Mac Show, and he has edited Emmy-nominated episodes of Veep and Curb Your Enthusiasm. As an award-winning documentarian, Nygaard has tackled topics like Trekkies and the nature of existence, and his latest documentary and book, The Truth About Marriage, examines how we can all make relationships happier. Roger, welcome to Men on Purpose. Good to be here. I guess it looks like I'm in the right place. It does. Yeah, you are definitely a man <laughs> on purpose. Now, to our audience, as I've learned more about you, I'm fascinated by you. You have such a rich experience of all kinds of cool stuff. Today, we're going to talk about your, your documentary, which is really awesome. And we're going to get into some fun stuff like directing The Office and what was it like to work with Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm. So let's get rolling. Okay. Well, what can I tell you? I mean, <laughs> of all those things how you, how you that I do, and all this stuff. <laughs> I, I wanted to laugh. You know, when I was a kid, I, I discovered movies and I found my dad's camera and I started taking pictures and then filming. And I just, I haven't stopped since I was seven years old. And it's always fueled by a desire to explore and investigate and learn. And also a little bit I was a bit of a trickster or a prankster and a magician when I was a kid. And I realized that making movies is about fooling people uh, yeah. or cheating their expectations. And that's <laughs> what comedy is, right? You cheat expectations. You set up one thing and then you build in a surprise. And all of my work has dealt with comedy. That's the one through line. It's all been comedy, including the documentaries. They're, they're really very funny, even though they may be packed with information. Interesting. Interesting. So, what got you started on documentaries versus like some of the very, very big time shows that you've, you've worked on? Well, the documentaries were an accident really as <laughs> like most life experiences are. And Denise Crosby pitched me the idea. She's an actress who is the host of Trekkies, my first documentary. I had cast her in a movie that I did called High Strung and she was uh, an actress and I met her and she did the part and she was great. And then a couple of years later, we stayed in touch and she said, someone should do a documentary about Star Trek fans. And I said, I can't believe no one's done that yet. It's so obvious, of course, but no one had done it. And so we, we started shooting. And once I did it, my first documentary, my first shoot, my first couple of shoots, I was hooked. It's like, what's the big deal? You try heroin once, right? The document, <laughs> you try shooting documentary once and you are hooked. Right. You know, I, it, how do you, especially with Trekkies, how do you know what to cover? Because I listened to a JJ Abrams uh, interview and he said he literally stayed up for three days straight, racking his brain with a whiteboard on how to take this, you know, what the audience, which may be the most loyal and discerning audience in the world, like you're under the gun. Now with the documentary, it's a little different, but like, how did you determine how to be most purposeful with what you're going to put out there. 
I did research and I had, I knew nothing about documentaries and Denise Crosby, she also knew nothing. And so kind of as a team, we got together and we rented a bunch of documentaries and watched them together. Like my brother's keeper, hoop dreams, crumb. And cause there was no fan documentaries. So we had to synthesize an approach of our own for Trekkies. It being the essentially the first of its kind. Yeah. But what I discovered is that they're just plain entertaining the good documentaries because they've cast really interesting people. Right. So the key was to find really interesting Star Trek fans. And if you go to a Star Trek convention, <laughs> if you throw hard. a stone, you're going to hit a really interesting <laughs> Star Trek fan. Right. I love that. What's one of your greatest challenges in life? <laughs> to relax, I think. Got it. <laughs> because you could say the, the negative term is a workaholic, but I'm also really a learnaholic. I really love to learn and I love, I read voraciously and I'm curious about the world and the universe and making documentaries for me is a way to express that, to channel that passion for something. And I do, I mean, you know, I'm not a true workaholic, I think, because I, maybe it's more, a better word for it is the Midwestern work ethic or the yeah. Scandinavian work ethic. I'm from Minnesota yeah. and it's very heavily laced there, infused <laughs> with people there that you're supposed to work hard. Right. So I work hard all day long. And at the end of the day, I reward myself. But if I was to play a video game in the morning, I would feel like an absolute loser. <laughs> I haven't earned it yet. I've got right. to put in some, get, accomplish something creative daily to earn that end of the day reward. It's, it's interesting you say that. You, you brought up a really operative word for me, which is curious. My dad always taught me to be curious about things, no matter how much you know about it. Just keep being curious about people and about the way things work and the way that systems work and things break down so that you're in that learning, like almost childlike mode. And you're very purposeful about your activity because you're genuinely and authentically wanting to know versus asking because you're supposed to ask. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. And it's in some ways it's a curse, but it's a blessing too. I think that a lot of the negative attributes that you could look at when you're growing up that may be withdrawn or someone is a loner. Well, yeah. it, that means you can focus or yeah. let's say that you have to deal with failure. You're, you're a big failure when you're young. Well, you learn how to fail. And sure. you bring these forward as superpowers into adulthood that help you deal with a world that's not created with soft edges and cushions. The world is a difficult, hard place full of sharp corners, and you've got to be prepared for right. how to handle that. And uh, my curiosity about the world and the universe is endless. When I made The Nature of Existence, I picked a topic that's unanswerable, existentialism. How do you solve the question of why do we exist? It's yeah. unsolvable, right. but that's the challenge. That's the lure for me. I tend to pick core questions that are virtually impossible to answer, and I love that challenge. In my current documentary, The Truth About Marriage, my core question was another unanswerable problem, you know, really virtually unanswerable question. Why are relationships or marriages so hard for people? Mm -hmm. If it was natural, we would do it naturally. It'd be easy, but obviously it's not. Yeah, you brought up a good point. I want to get into that because they're obviously being about being purposeful, you know, our show, people are very purposeful in dating and they're very purposeful in getting married and the proposal and the, obviously the weddings are, you know, these big extravagant shows most of the time. 
but how do people stay on purpose in marriage? And I, I watched a good bit of the documentary and I almost had, I had to stop watching because I kept writing more questions to ask you. So, so that's why I wrote the book so I could have it all in one place for you. Right. And, um, I have so many of them here. So I want to, I want to jump into them. Like one of them is why are relationships so hard? Like why is marriage so hard? We're not designed for the type of relationships that our culture asks us to participate in. Now we're designed for what they call, it's called the Savannah principle. Mm-hmm. We evolved on the African Savannah. And in that environment, we lived in small tribes of 150 or fewer, where everybody shared everything and worked together and raised the children together. And it was a very different way of interacting than we do now when we live in a world approaching 8 billion people and instant access to anything you could possibly want on the internet and virtually unlimited supply of dating partners on dating apps. (laughs) It's not what we're designed or used to. We, We like a small number of choices if you go into a supermarket and there's more than five brands of mustard, we overload. We want three to five choices, good choices, and then pick one. And so we're not designed, this idea that you can keep swiping until you find the perfect match means you're gonna, you're never, why would you ever stop searching? Because you're gonna feel like I haven't checked enough or maybe the best one is yet to come. When it's about choosing someone eventually, and then focusing your intention on that relationship and on that person with purpose to make that the one you're going to work on. Because just if you keep switching, you're just changing one set of problems or one set of personality quirks for another. And then you're losing all of the shared history. So what is the point? The point is eventually you reach a point where they call it you've sown enough wild oats or something, right? But you've got enough of a test sample where you feel like, okay, I'm going to choose now the the one that is as good as the best one I've already passed up because you can't go backwards most of the time. And it's called the uh, relationship dilemma. There's a scientific methodology for that. And they say that usually people need to sample about 14 relationships. Hmm. That's kind of the average number. And after that, they feel like they're ready. And, you know, it could be earlier. It could be more than that. But scientifically most people are ready around number 14 or 15 therein lies the point we were talking about earlier about curiosity with all those options you know i i'll tell you chris rock have you ever heard his um men are as faithful as their options yeah 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 and and and, and in in other documentaries or other things that i've heard him on he said people are only as faithful as their options and almost goes back to that that curiosity point of if you've got a thousand people in front of you to swipe, your brain, just the animal brain in you is just curious about what it would be like to talk to that person or know that person or hear that person's voice. Do you think that people sabotage their relationships? Because I know you mentioned in the oh, documentary that, yes, like, why do we feel like we get relationships wrong? But like, well, do you think that people pur- purposefully get them wrong to yeah. go out well, and be curious? Nobody teaches us. There's no class in high school. Imagine this is the most important thing you're going to do in your life is have a relationship with somebody and there's no class, right. (laughs) To teach you how to do it the right way. Right. At least some, some pointers or some guidelines. They teach you math and science and gym class, but nothing about how to have 
a successful or happier relationship. They kick you out into the world and you've got to make mistakes and fall on your face over and over again. Everyone's making the same mistakes. Well, it turns out there are some simple things anyone can do to increase the happiness trajectory of their relationships. And that's what I was looking for in making the documentary. What are some basic things that anyone, I myself, what can I apply to my own life to make my relationships happier? And that's what I collected in the documentary and in the book. It's really interesting you say that. I, I guess besides the things that we've talked about, I want to come back from the, from the break. We, we've already, we've already kind of gotten there. But I want to talk to you about, the, you mentioned something else in the, in the documentary that, that piqued my interest about women being the boss. And I, I feel asked everybody, like, everyone agrees. I know, I know, I know. Um, there must be a reason. I remember, I remember that one guy said, she's not the boss. I just go to her for everything. When she makes a decision, it, she makes it okay for me to make a decision on my own. <laughs> and, or something like something around those lines. So, so I want to thank all of our listeners who are downloading, rating, and reviewing our awesome show. You know, we've already gotten tens of thousands of downloads from all over the world as we're now downloaded in 97 countries. Now, this week, I actually want to shout out to our listeners in Thailand. Thanks, everybody in Thailand, for downloading and listening to our show and being all purpose about it. I also want to let everybody know that our first personal performance mastery program was a huge hit, and it sold out in record time. So we're starting another program, actually launching now. So for those of you who are interested in finding out more, go to mentalpurposepodcast.com. Get all those details. We're talking about relationships and Roger's fun that he has had in Hollywood on some of the coolest shows that we all know about and making his own documentaries. So if you want to find out more about Roger, if you want to find out where to get his uh, documentary, Truth About Marriage, or any of his other documentaries, such as Trekkies, um, you can go to mentalpurposepodcast.com forward slash Roger Nygaard. That's N-Y-G-A-R-D. Remember, you can literally find anything and everything you want to know in the show notes as well. So mentalpurposepodcast.com forward slash Roger Nygaard, N-Y-G-A-R-D. All right, Roger, we are back talking about relationships. And before the break, we were talking about women are the boss. And I, I'm, I'm almost guaranteeing my wife is standing right behind that door saying, yes, I got it. <laughs> so tell us why that is. And what'd you find out through the documentary? Well, there's a lot of pushback that I get from people, from men who say, well, that's not the case. And then they'll start to examine it and go, well, we break things up into territories and I have this territory and she has that territory. Well, if you look at the percentage of territories and who has the most important territories, or as Dr. Pat Allen says, who has the final veto? Yeah. It tends to fall to the woman in the relationship. And why is that the case? Well, apparently that's the way mother nature intended it. And we used to be a matriarchal society when we lived in small tribes. Women were making most of the decisions and they're sending men off to go, go hunt and come back in a week or whenever you found some, some uh, food. Meanwhile, the women are the keepers of the society. They're the, hunt, they're, they're the gatherers. They found 80% of the food. They were more valuable. Yeah. Over time, that changed. And the reason that changed is because of the discovery of agriculture around six to 10,000 years ago when human beings stopped being nomads, stayed in one place. Suddenly, men started to think, well, this is my land, mine. I own this. The idea of propriety occurred to them. I own everything. And I want to make sure I pass on everything I own to my own genetic children, although they didn't understand genetics, but right. they knew they had children. And so the way that they did that, what occurred over time to the males was to create this social fence around women to 
control their sexual behavior so they would know, men would know it's their, their child. Because women know it comes out of her body. There's no doubt it's her baby. Of course. But how can the guy be sure if he hasn't what they practice, what they call mate guarding, the anthropologists right. call it mate guarding, the biologists. If he's been out in the field working or hunting, he hasn't been around, he can't be certain. So this idea of marriage occurred to people as a way to control women's sexual behavior. And that's the origin of marriage. And a man trying to take power away from where naturally power is. If you have the power, why would you have to exercise so much force to retain it? And men right. have to, over, you look at societies where they try to put women in a secondary position. They've got to put a lot of sometimes violence and effort into subjugating women. Naturally, if you put men and women together, women tend to take the leadership position on anything important. And apparently that's what Mother Nature intended. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say it. Women take the lead on most things important. And it's still that way, I think, today. It's just obviously evolved a lot more and we have more choices and options and things like that. But, you know, I'm the one who builds our businesses and I always say to my wife, when people say like, you know, what do you guys do? And, and my wife, is, I say, well, we, we work together. I'm just the guy. I'm the talent in front of the camera. My wife does everything else. Like, that's really true. Even though I'm very capable, and I think most men feel like there's a big disconnect because I'm very capable to build a business and make the exact amount of money that I want. And I'm not sure how to get out of a grocery store within three hours with a simple <laughs> list and like to keep the smaller things going. It's just not in my DNA. Now I know plenty of men who it, who it is in their DNA, but that's probably from nurturing from, from right. childhood, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, everybody has a certain degree of masculine and feminine within them. I have a feminine, I have feminine needs as well as masculine needs. Sure. And it's not really a male female thing. It's more of a masculine feminine polarity and you might find a man who's got more feminine than his more masculine wife. Sometimes it goes that way. Let me put it on a, a biological or, or a micro scale. The yeah. woman is the keeper of the egg. And if you look at the micro scale, men provide the sperm, which is vastly, a thousand times smaller than the egg and yeah. vastly more plentiful. You can get sperm by the millions easily, but it's much harder to get an egg. You got to work a lot harder to get access to an egg. <laughs> the egg puts up barriers and only lets the most serious sperm through. It's very and true. On the macro level, men are providing resources to the keeper of the egg in order yeah. to keep that person happy and fed and, uh, and healthy because she's the one who's going to nurture and, and bring forth life. Right. Men are in a service industry <laughs> to this entity <laughs> that creates life. Right. So it kind of makes sense if you're in charge, if you're the keeper of the egg, you should probably be, be in charge of the most life and death decisions that affect the future of the species. Yeah, you're right. And that's what, I, I'm, that's what I was saying was I can do all these things that I think are really big, like building businesses and all these, you know, quote unquote, big things. I don't know. I'm sure forced I could, but I don't know if I could really do everything that she does on a daily basis and retain my sanity. You, you have to provide an environment for her to thrive so yeah. that your future progeny will, will thrive. What do you think about, you know, 
something that I struggle with, I know my dad struggled with, was the identity behind just being a provider and kind of forcing more of that masculine energy forward and kind of putting some of the feminine energy back just because it's not as, as purposeful or useful. Like, I just want to get your thoughts on that. What do you say about men who just feel like they have this one job to do and they just actually really would like to be a little bit more well-rounded? Yeah, well, we're all different. We all have different percentages of needs yeah. and of masculine and feminine. And the ideal union between a man and a woman is someone who is the opposite in yeah. that regard because we're meant to complete each other, not duplicate each other. Good we're point. meant to have someone who's different from us, who challenges us, who tests us. If you have two of yourself, you would never get along and you'd get nothing out of it. Two alphas together is, is or two masculines or two feminines is not a recipe for long-term success in a relationship. Yeah. So you're looking for someone and the ideal match is someone who is on the opposite side of the spectrum on a masculine feminine energy uh, aspect as well as biologically, and this is where chemistry comes in. Nature has designed us with a way to assess whether a potential mate is a good partner because they bring to the table something you don't have. Hmm. And they did a test. It's called the T-shirt test. Klaus Wedekind, a Swiss scientist, asked 40 women, 40-some women, to sniff 40-some T-shirts that men had worn for a week and rank the T-shirts by which one is the most attractive by smell. Yeah. And then they looked to see if there's any correlation why they chose those T-shirts because they had specific opinions that varied on which T-shirts smelled the best. And what they found was what they were reacting to was an opposite immune system called the MHC, the Multiple Histocompatibility Complex. And what is attractive to a human, whether it's in the kiss or in sensing the pheromones and in the smell, is you're sensing that that person's immune system is different from yours. Hmm. And is different. the more different, the better, because then you're giving your offspring the benefit of two different dissimilar immune systems and a better chance at survival. If you have the same immune system as your wife or a potential mate, Let's say you have a kiss. You're going to, ah, it was, it, she's attractive, but there's no spark. Well, it's because right. your body's saying you're too similar in immune systems. And that's what they found in the t-shirt study. That's really, I've never heard it put like that. There's a lot going on beneath our conscious awareness. <laughs> there is. There it is. Will is kind of a myth in many yeah. respects. There's a lot our bodies are doing that we're not aware of, and it's making us make decisions based on these, these cues that are fed into our brains. So I want to talk to you about something in our coaching business. A lot of men come to us and one of the biggest things they say is I've lost that spark and I don't know how to get it back. It's been polarity is years. Gone. That's what, what happened. That? It's called habituation. The polarity, yeah. the masculine feminine polarity has become habituated. They become too similar. When two people are together all the time, they become the same. Yeah. So if you go to a passion seminar, they teach you how to recalibrate your polarity and move back to different poles. And one person behaves in a feminine energy, one behaves with a masculine energy instead of the same. And mm. in the workplace, everyone's masculine. And part of the problem is that women go to the workplace and have to put on their masculine in order to, to compete and interact. And when they go home, they don't turn it off. So you have two masculines at home and the spark clash. goes down. Right. So they teach women how to re to, to switch back their, to their feminine back on. Or if it's the man, the man could be the one who is the more feminine of the two. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter as long as you recalibrate the polarity. Very interesting. So obviously our show is about being purposeful. 
let's talk about what you learn and give our audience some, some, I would say tips and tricks, but I mean, just give us some information on how to re, I don't want to say rekindle, but like, how can you breathe new life into the relationship? How can you, there's one specific thing. Yeah. I can tell you one specific thing that we are all doing wrong or some less wrong than others. Men, if men who are listening right now, if you hear one thing, here's my one most important piece of advice that I learned after talking to psychologists for over years doing this documentary and writing the book, The Truth About Marriage. Men are terrible listeners and women need to be listened to in a certain way. It's like a vitamin that they need daily to feel satisfied. And if you don't give them this nutrient, this emotional nutrient, they're going to be unsatisfied, which leads to frustration, arguments, and unhappiness. So the right way to listen, here's what you're doing wrong, guys. Daily, a woman needs about 15 to 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes of listening. So you should go home every day or at some point during the day, put your cell phone on airplane mode, turn off the TV, make eye contact, and say, honey, how was your day? How are you feeling? And then shut up. The problem that the biggest <laughs> problem is that it's not, it's counterintuitive for men to just shut up and not offer solutions. They don't want your suggestions or solutions. Don't fix anything. Just offer empathy. How are you feeling? And then shut up and maybe say, oh, that's, that's terrible. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so sorry that happened. I'm so happy for you. That's it. That's Why all that she, so hard? she, it's not natural. And so we have to, intentionally on purpose yeah listen with intent and women or the feminine one in the relationship don't abuse this don't ask for more than 20 or 30 minutes per day because that's about all of the male brain or the masculine side of the brain can handle the feminine side can handle hours of talking about relationships or feelings but you got about 20 to 30 minutes max from the men so if you can do that daily everything gets better Everyone's happier, passion increases, and you, your chance for longevity and happiness all go up. It's really interesting that you say that. I've heard that before, and it seems so easy and in application. It's challenging. It's really challenging. And Try that's an experiment. I, Just right. do it for a week. Just do an experiment for a week. You got, what does it cost you to try listening intently for a week and shut up while doing it and see what happens? Yeah. You know, when we go, when we do some, we're going to do some bonus material in just a little bit. And I want to go into like a, almost a role play with you for, for the guys that are listening in the, in the bonus section. Cause honestly, it, this is so simple and it's just, it's not. So one more question real quick. Cause we're almost out of time. What else are we going to learn from this, from this documentary? I mean, like it's, I watched half of it and I was, I was so curious as we talked about, I was writing all these questions down. What else are we going to learn from the documentary? Well, the first half of the documentary, which you really got into so far is here are all the problems and here are some people that I, some couples that I met and studied. The second half of the documentary are the solutions and the answers. And here's what I found and how to fix all the problems that came up in the first half and simple solutions like the listening thing. That's really simple and yeah. no, no one teaches you how to do it. And people make the mistake over and over again. It's natural for men to say when a woman says, oh, my boss is such a jerk. Well, why don't you quit? That's the worst <laughs> thing you could say. Why don't you tell him? Well, if you do that, then suddenly she feels like she's worse as the person. She's right. not doing the right thing. And really, all she's doing is processing her emotions of the day, and she needs to verbalize it, and then she feels much better. Just give her a hug. Listen and shut up and give her a hug, and everything's going to be so much better. 
So you're going to hear things, find out things like that in the documentary in the book, these simple things that all the psych psychologists and all the experts told me are in an agreement on. Love that. All right, Roger, we are, we're a wrap. This, thank you very much. This has been a, this has been an absolute, uh, absolute pleasure. I want to thank you You're for, welcome. for, for coming on and, and shooting the breeze. 27 minutes goes by fast, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so for, for everybody listening, just want to thank Roger Nygaard for being on and, and for bringing so much value to today's episode. It's really, uh, it's something that all of us that are married or in relationships in general, just really, we need to know this, the depth and we need to know it in, in a form that we can believe other people are doing too. So we don't feel so alone. I want to thank you, our loyal listeners for tuning in each week and supporting our show. And remember to go to mentalpurposepodcast.com forward slash Roger Nygaard, N-Y-G-A-R-D to find out more about Roger and all the fun stuff Roger is up to. Uh, you can send your comments or suggestions to listeners at mentalpurposepodcast.com. And thanks again for tuning in. And remember, we all have a choice. Choose to be on purpose. Thanks again for listening to the Men on Purpose podcast, where our mission is to educate, elevate, and activate every man to truly live their best, most fulfilling life possible. To find out more about the podcast, our guests, or becoming a man on purpose, visit menonpurposepodcast.com and choose your most purposeful path forward.